1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. So for today's episode, you're going to hear a interview that I did. This was recorded about a month ago. So it might be a little out of date when we talk a little bit at times about current events. However, most of the topics that we talked about in that episode were just kind of more in the, I guess, like the genre of evergreen content. So that's why we sort of pushed it back a little bit. So I could talk more about some of the current events that I've been talking about over the last month. But this conversation was with James Gentleman, who I used to talk to a lot on my old podcast, the Daniel 3 podcast, when he had his own podcast called Blackbird. And James and I had a Twitter interaction maybe a couple months ago that made me want to have a conversation with him where he felt like the not-aggression principle sort of the gold standard or golden rule of libertarian philosophy was actually not a good principle or at least not helpful or not something that libertarians should necessarily tie themselves to or anchor themselves to, so to speak. And so I thought that was interesting. I generally like the non-aggression principle, although I'm not married to it like I am. The, you know, as always, my moral philosophy kind of stems from the scripture. But I I find like, you know, the non-aggression principle is basically do not murder, do not steal, right? You know, do not initiate aggression against non-violent actors is essentially what the non-aggression principle is. And so I was kind of curious where he was coming from. So we had a conversation, it was very free form diving into different subtopics and tangents and whatnot. James and I are kind of old friends and buddies. So we uh, tend to bring out some of the uh, playfulness and, uh, you know, humorous sides of one another. But I think it was an enjoyable conversation and, you know, it'll be a nice break of pace from sort of the, more depressing or more serious content I've been doing on foreign policy and theology and whatnot. That stuff's good, but, you know, this will be a nice break of pace to just kind of sit back and listen to two old friends, just kind of like, you know, you'd almost, uh, you know, we were doing this virtually, we might as well have been sitting down together and enjoying a beer over a fire and uh, just kind of Talking about philosophy, talking about religion, and just having a conversation that was personally edifying for the both of us. And I think that you will also enjoy it. James is a very intelligent person and a very deep thinker. And so even where I disagree with him, I find that his contributions are really helpful. He helps to challenge my presuppositions and ways of thinking about things and to look at things in a different way. And I also highly encourage even though he doesn't produce it anymore, that you go check out his old podcast, The Blackbird Podcast, which is still up there. He did a lot of great content interviews on there, on politics, but also just on other topics in general. So that's all I have for an introduction for you guys today. So again, please enjoy this episode. And that's all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Biblical Anarchy podcast. I am here with my good friend James Jeniman. James, how are you doing tonight? Hey Jacob, it's good to see you again. Yeah, it's been a long time, man. So I know, man. James, you used to be one of the fellow libertarian podcast hosts and then you retired early at the uh, you, you went to episode 100, right? If I remember correctly. Or did yeah, you where did you I cut it off
2: 200 actually.
1: Or the 200, I forget. I you cut yeah, it off well, at an because, even spot. Uh, I did that rebrand. I
2: went from the Agorist podcast to Blackbird. Right. Because, you know, I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about my ideological evolution on this during this conversation. It, that seems to be like, whenever I'm on your show, like, we're just talking about what I've changed my mind about this time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, um, but yeah,
2: yeah, I was at Blackbird. I don't remember if it was 100 episodes or 200 episodes, but, it was, you know, it was a lot. And I, I loved doing the interviews, but I wasn't making any money off of it. So I figured I needed to go do something that would make me a little bit more money. Although, I am... Not really doing that. I, you know, I work a salaried position
1: at this point. So, like, I just kind of live off my salary, although I'd rather not be. No, it's all good. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even though you're not doing it anymore, your podcast was definitely one of my favorites. You are a very good interviewer. You had a lot of different, you weren't just another libertarian podcaster just doing like the normal libertarian circuit, although that was in there as well. But you would just have, you know, different people on that weren't even libertarians to talk about different topics and whatnot. And it was always fascinating listening to your show. And I did like your rebrand. I liked the idea of, you know, the blackbird and, you know, spread your wings and learn to fly and, and all that. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm, Cutting into your speaking time, you're the guest here. So I'll let you maybe just ramble on a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself a little bit well, to, I mean, a lot of my audience probably already knows you because they might have rolled over from my, my audience from the Daniel 3 podcast. But for those mm-hmm. who don't, go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself, your background, what it is you do. Oh, sure. So my name is James. I don't know, man.
2: Like, I, I'm just your average, like, libertarian dude, like I discovered Ron Paul in 2008. Actually, it's kind of funny. I just realized today that, like, I was one of those 19-year-old leftists who was warning Republicans that they were going to be targeted if they passed this damn Patriot Act back in 2001 or two or whatever it was. <laughs> and like, hey, look at that. I was right about that, too. We're going to talk about all the things that I've been right about tonight, actually. <laughs> what else about me? So I'm an LP member. I'm still an LP member. I am a lifetime member of the National Party. I'm active in my state affiliate. I live in Minnesota, although I am I think I'm actually a member of the PA Party still. Probably. And yeah, yeah I, you know, and I, I don't know, I work in education tech specifically, like EdTech. I hosted a podcast that we talked about for either 100 or 200 episodes. I think, you know, I think one of the main reasons and this, like you just were talking about it and that's what reminded me of it. I think one of the main reasons that I like decided to retire my podcast was because I really was just kind of phoning it in and like only having conversations with my libertarian friends, which was exactly what I didn't want my podcast to be. I had a lot of interesting guests, like, you know, people who were experts on psychedelics and a guy that was like in the music industry forever and had all kinds of insights and scholars and doctors and a guy that like, you know, he'll come to your farm and butcher your calf for you, your cow there for you on, on your land, all kinds of really interesting people. And then it became just kind of like a steady rotation of like, you know, L.B. Muniz and you and Jose. And it just became a little bit like, yeah, this has probably reached its course. I think I'm just kind of doing the same thing over and over again. That said, and we'll get into this, I've been really interested lately. So, are you familiar with Charles Haywood? He writes at theworthyhouse.com. It's one of the things the name rings a bell, but I'm, I'm yeah. not able to recognize his work. Sure. I think I probably first heard him on like Pete a show, probably. But anyway, so he's a right-wing, like he's sort of like a Curtis Yarvin type, I guess. Like he's, I think he's a monarchist, although he's not, a, he's not like a Yarvinian monarchist. He's an East, Eastern Orthodox Christian, which is kind of cool. Anyway, he just, he has a lot of good things to say. I don't agree with him on everything, which I, I hate saying that because I think, like, you have to so say, cliche, like, right? why, why like, do you like, need to say that? Right. That applies to <laughs> literally everyone in the world. I guess because he's right-wing and I have to, like, sanitize that for the listening public. Uh, <laughs> I have to I have to disclaim my admiration and, and fandom for this guy. But yeah, I recommend going to com. He just writes book reviews. They're kind of in the guise of book reviews, but really it's just him talking about his, you know, his ideas. And one of his big ideas is basically, and it's not his idea, obviously, like this is just real ideology. So like, you know, sort of like a system of belief is completely separate from reality ideas. You know, that's why we have like idealists and realists and uh, like idea and real are kind of at odds with one another. And I, at first that really, that really like, rub me the 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 wrong way. It reminded me of back when Jordan Peterson first started kind of jumping into the scene when he was battling the social justice people at the at the university where he was a professor and he always called them ideologically captured. And I never understood what he meant by that. And so it's taken this long like in the last couple of months to realize that like that's kind of what he meant is that, you know, they become so tied up with their their thoughts and their, you know, what they what want the world to be like. That they don't—they don't look at history. They don't look at like what's going on right now. They don't see Jordan Peterson as a human being to interact with. They see him as an opponent to, to defeat. And I think—am I jumping the gun here? Am I? Are you like wanting to ask me questions before I before no, I start no. this sort of holding forth?
1: Listen, whenever you and I talk. Most of my guests, I send questions ahead of time. And like I said to you earlier, I was like, we, like we picked two kind of broad topics that we haven't yeah. even really touched yet. When I have you on, we we kind of cover everything. Yeah. So I you can keep going. Okay, cool. Great. Thanks. So I was reading this guy and I, you know, I've read a lot of Yarvin, and I've read a lot of,
2: I've, I've read a lot of libertarian stuff, obviously. And it's kind of led me to question some of the sort of fundamental tenets of libertarianism. And... It, I have publicly, like, rejected the non-aggression principle, for instance. I don't really believe in, like, the, you know how in in human action, and I think Rothbard does this too, they they always, whenever they, like, talk about, like, their sort of hypothetical situation, it's always Robinson Crusoe getting shipwrecked on this island, all living by himself, and that's, like, the foundation of how we derive natural rights, the non-aggression principle you know, homesteading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We always start with that one individual who's living by himself on the desert island. And it it makes absolute sense. Like, you know, libertarians are always saying, oh yeah, we're logically consistent. And it's true. The only problem is like people are rational actors, but they're not logical actors necessarily. So being logically consistent isn't really a good way to like build a society, I guess, or to, I guess, Continuing a
1: society, I guess. Or even because I can kind of see what you're saying. It it like in a sense would be a good way to build a society. But because there's so many people who aren't logical, if you try to engage in that, like, well, in a utopia, everyone would be engaging by the same logical framework I would be, you're you're at the very least going to be hitting your head against the wall and probably not be mm-hmm. as successful towards achieving your ends as you might be, as if you You know, you you could probably find ways to achieve your ends in, but not exactly in the framework that you find to be the most logically consistent or or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what you're getting at.
2: It's a little bit what I'm getting at. Like, I don't know when it was. It was years ago. It was when the Tom Woods group was on Facebook still. So it's like a long time ago. I posted something in there that basically said no one gives a S about your logical consistency. And... Like, it's kind of true. Like, I I am sure there are people in this world who have been convinced by logical, rational, you know, purely heady arguments. I'm not one of those people, and I don't think most people are. There's this thing called the cognitive behavioral cycle, and it kind of goes hand in hand with stoicism, actually. All of our behaviors are based on emotions, and all of our emotions are based on thoughts and, like, underlying beliefs that we have about the world around us. And so when we see something, we interpret that with our thoughts Those thoughts lead to our emotions, and those emotions lead to our behaviors. Any human action that we ever take always comes from thought, feel, behave. And so you know, like the Stoics say, if you can change the way, if you can change your worldview, you can change your actions. But if you don't change your worldview, then you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna change how you how you interact with the world. So to me, like that leads me to believe that changing your mind, which is an action, is generally it's is generally done based on an emotion that you feel from th- from some thought that you had. And so I'm not going to change my mind because I read For a New Liberty. I do say that For a New Liberty made me an ANCAP. But I think that I read For a New Liberty when I was ready to become an ANCAP. And then I became one after I read it. You know what I mean? Does that, does that make sense? Like if I had read it a year before I did, I might not have become an ANCAP. Because it mm-hmm. wasn't the arguments that that persuaded me. It was the evolution of my worldview that, that sort of holistically persuaded me?
1: I mean, certainly, I don't know if this matches up with your experience. Initially, I thought that mine was different than yours, but I don't So I started out as more of a leftist. I was a registered Democrat, Democratic Socialist, like Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. guy. The thing that pushed me over the, he- the edge of being an ANCAP was actually, before he went off the rails, Kokesh's book, Freedom. And that made arguments that kind of pushed me over the edge into accepting sort of like the anarchist premise of government. If I had read that in like 2016, I would have rejected it. I, I definitely had a political evolution that I wasn't like, I don't think I you know, I wouldn't have described it at the time as as I was ready to be an ANCAP, but I guess in hindsight, I could probably describe it that way. Like I was the soil was fertile. Like I I was like, like the seed could have the seed was able to be planted and it was able to take root and grow. And <laughs> I, it's all under a biblical I, metaphor we could make, right? Know? Yeah, if, if only if only if only Jesus had ever used some kind of parables about so seeds and sowers and things like that. But yeah, exactly. So I, I can kind of get what you're saying there. I think that changing it, it, the, the art of changing people's minds is something that is very important to both my religion, to my Christian beliefs, and also my libertarian beliefs, but it, it is sort of a, you know, I don't know what the formula is. It just seems like there are some people who are really good at it. And so you, you try to promote them or there's like books that seem to be do a good job at it. So you try to promote those books, but yeah, there's kind of like right time, right place. There's, there's factors to changing people's minds and hearts that are kind of beyond our yeah. control. But yeah, I think, so it's like, there, there's two things here. Like one of the things that we wanted to talk about, which, you sort of alluded to was that you don't believe in the non-aggression principle. Now, most of the libertarian audience here is going to know what that is, but for the odd Christian who listens to my show and who's like, "What the heck is this?" The non-aggression principle is basically like a libertarian cliche or mantra. It's like a way of like summarizing libertarian ethics into like one neat principle. I agree with the, or it's sometimes called the NAP, and I agree with it. Although I think it would be more accurate if you called it the like N-I-A-P because I I don't think it's that we're against aggression or violence or coercion in principle. We're against the initiation of those things. So it really should be the non-initiation of aggression principle. But N-I-A-P isn't a word, so (laughs) you just say non-aggression principle. But yeah, it's basically that like, you know, don't hurt. If someone is acting peacefully, it is wrong to initiate aggression against them. So we call that the non-aggression principle and that's kind of a summation of libertarian ideas you know it's often it's kind of like some people express it as don't hurt people and don't take their stuff is another way of saying it so which i mean and i would say that lines up with biblical principles do not Mm -hmm. steal do not murder things like that so i think the nip makes sense i'm curious i know you're kind of getting into it but just to frame it for the audience i'm curious why you're rejecting it and what you mean by rejecting it if you're rejecting it like it's a bad principle or it's not a useful principle because it doesn't map on to like, I I can kind of guess where you're, I I can kind of guess where you might be going. Like it doesn't map on to how people think or operate might be something that is is off about it.
2: Yeah, that's it. Um, have you, what's Hoppa's big, big book? Have you read democracy? The guy that failed? Yeah. Okay. So in that book, he talks about these covenant communities, right? Like the, so he, first he gives a big history of like feudalism and monarchy and so on and so forth. And he's like, hey, this is more libertarian than democracy. That's why democracy is the guy that failed. But look at this system that I've just created. It's called the covenant community. And basically it's a city, except you sign a contract to agree by all the rules. And like, to me, that's not natural. That's just not how humans interact. And so like for the entirety of the human, of the human history, we have formed tribes. And yes, the contract, so to speak, or the covenant, was informal, but it was there. There were folkways, there were mores, there were le- there was you know legislation. Some legislation that seems weird to us today. A lot of folkways and mores that seem weird to us today, but none of them abided by this universal non-aggression principle. They all had taxation. They all had a chief or a president or legislature or a senate or whatever that would impose certain laws to to enforce order upon the society that they're legislating. Because otherwise, you're reliant on people of their own volition interacting peacefully and cooperatively. And for the most part, adults do do that. So, like that, and that's why, you know, when you hear like argumentation ethics proponents say, look, you're doing it right now, you're arguing, you're making, you're having this dialogue. That proves that the non-aggression principle is valid because if you weren't, if you didn't believe in the non-aggression principle, you'd just be punching it, you'd just be punching that dude in the face right now. And that's obviously, like, and I'm sure that's a straw man. I haven't had a good debate or, like, heard a good debate between people talking about this argumentation ethics, like, performative non-contradiction thing that Hoppe talks about. So, um, I'm, I'm only going by my own brain, which isn't nearly as, like, as good as Hoppe's. So... Like, maybe I'm just completely misreading it. But to me, it's not a performative non-contradiction if you have, a, if you have an argument with somebody that doesn't lead to violence. Because it's also not a performative non-contradiction non-cont- uh, if it does eventually lead to violence. All that does is express a, a preference for both parties to not have violence. Like, they don't want to hurt their fists on each other's faces, and they don't want to get their faces hurt by each other's fists. You know, that's why we don't do violence. It's not because we abide by
1: this non-aggression principle. It's because we don't want to get hit, and we don't want to hit other people if we can avoid it. So, so I'll try to I'll try to restate that in, in my own words. That's what I do to make sure I'm understanding people. Yeah, good. Are Thanks. you saying that basically um, people aren't acting out property rights and the non-aggression principle as Hoppe claims in things like argumentation ethics? Rather, it's just more, you know, maybe a strict biological, just like I don't want to mm-hmm. get hurt if I hurt others there's a chance I will get hurt. And so it's just kind of like risk-reward kind of analysis that people have well, evolved to kind of like have a little bit of self-preservation built in that makes them act out a at least a basic ethic. Although, you know, certainly if people think they can get away with something, they'll, I guess, try to get away with it. But if they I don't think, think they can get away with it, that, that would certainly be a deterrent. I think that's the case. I think it's also the case that, you know, that...
2: If you and I were to get into like an irreconcilable feud, we wouldn't hit each other. We wouldn't go to war. We would just stop being friends. But if I and, you know, some stranger got into some irreconcilable feud, we'd be much more likely to come to violence, especially if we were like rivaling over Ah. some scarce good or, or some scarce piece of land or some scarce measure of influence over a particular society. I'm not particularly power hungry or, you know, aiming towards influence. So like, That doesn't really appeal to me. But if we were, if I was power hungry and aiming towards influence, then maybe, maybe I would try to, you know, steal someone else's influence and power that they have over other people. So it's more likely to come to blows the more removed we are from one another. And and again, I don't think that that's like a, I don't think that that's like a, an indication that, yeah, we're non-aggressive and so we don't come to blows. It's just that, you know, we're non-aggressive because we're humans and, and it takes a lot to make us get aggressive with one another and the more care and concern that we have for the other person, the less likely we are to engage in violence against them,
1: I guess. Sure. So I I guess there's there's a few different lines there. I'm going to try to filter out my autism and focus on, on the ones that are the most productive to (laughs) conversation here. Uh, So I, I think that there's definitely an element of, yeah, people I think at base level oftentimes don't, do bad things because they're afraid of getting punished. Actually, that's like, I think I've heard like Jordan Peterson and others talk about that. Like that is like weak morality or like, I think it was mm-hmm. Nietzsche or someone else that basically said like, they're really, people aren't moral. They're just cowards. Is another way of putting it. Like, <laughs> like people would Jeez. do more bad things than they actually do, but they're not brave enough to do it because they're too afraid of the consequences, which isn't really a morality. That's yeah. more of a, of a just like f- a cowardice. But anyway, it's like, I don't know if I buy that as a generalization, but I'm sure there are some people who are like that. Yeah, sure, sure. But I, I guess my counter to that, and I, I don't know if you've read Mere uh, Christianity with uh, by C.S. Mm-hmm. C. Lewis, but I, I tend to agree with that natural law argument, just that mm-hmm. like, I, I think that we can observe multiple things to be true at the same time. And I think your observation mm-hmm. is more or less correct in terms of like the micro level. If we look at like microtransactions between people and like what is playing out, most of the time when we don't engage in violence, we're not exactly engaging in moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not thinking like, I can't do this yeah. because I'll be violating that's, the property rights. Well, and that's <laughs> the thing, Jacob. That's the big thing
2: is that I just don't, I don't, I don't see... Mm, mm, mm. But, uh, let me let me let me let me phrase this really precisely. I don't see in the year twenty twenty three a lot of value in in moral philosophy. At least not for myself. I think that we are facing a very dire situation that is going to require people to to touch grass. Frankly, the fun little phrase that we've been using for the last few years, because people are too online. Um, Mm -hmm. it's real. Like you, we are going to have to start interacting with the real world again because we're going to have no other choice. You know what I mean? Like we're going to have to start building communities again. What did I, I read something earlier, like prior to the internet, we were born into communities and then we found our individuality. But after the, after social media, we were born individuals and we had to find our community. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be reverting to that, that former status of human of humanity or whatever. It doesn't mean I think that the internet's gonna go away or social media, all the social networks are gonna crumble or anything like that. I'm not like a, you know, collapsitarian or whatever you say, but um <laughs> we're at a point right now where it's looking like the United States you know, the the at least uh-huh. it's looking to me like whether we're advocating for national divorce or we're advocating for individual state secession or we're advocating for, you know, unionism over everything. The American empire is not long for the world. You know, maybe it'll be 10 years, maybe it'll be a hundred years, but at some point in the next generation or three, we are probably going to have to be rebuilding and you don't sure. rebuild online and you don't rebuild with philosophy.
1: Hmm. Would you say, now I'm slightly playing deviled advocate here because I, I would actually... I would argue against my own question here, but I think it's okay. important to ask. I mean, I could argue against any question. I did speech and debate, so. <laughs> and I'm a libertarian, so that goes without saying. Wouldn't you say, I mean, like, the American experiment was certainly founded on moral philosophy or moral philosophers. Yeah, it was. And that's the problem. Well, that, okay, that's not the
2: problem. <laughs> there's There's no problem with building a community based on shared values. In fact, I would go so far as to say there's nothing wrong with building a community and also expecting other people who don't share your values to act as if they do share your values if they're going to continue living in your community.
1: Well, that's, yeah, that, I mean, to that's, me, that's, that's about the whole, that's kind of like the Hoppian and also kind yeah. of like the Praxian view. Like, don't change people's hearts and minds, just change the incentives so that they act out the values you want yeah. them to act.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think that's about right. I didn't really think about the changing the incentives. Uh, I haven't talked to Andrew in a very long time. But, me neither. Uh, yeah, but. that makes sense too. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, Andrew, being the Mises GOP guy, who I think he's even done not anymore though. I think he kind of yeah. stepped out of that. He
1: had a kid, and that changes things. Yeah. I, I have four. Well, kids. I need to catch up with him, man. I was in Houston
2: <laughs> last year, and I was gonna go. I was gonna look him up, but never got around to it. So yeah, I should probably, I
1: should probably reach back out. I like that guy. Yeah, I um, think he's a cool guy. But yeah, I, I, don't, I, I, I think, like we were talking about. Ahead. I
2: think we, I think we were talking about this before we started recording. But like I. Have completely dropped off the map. Like I haven't talked to a lot of my old friends from the podcasting days. I think this is. I mean, this is the first time you and I have spoken to one another probably oh, wow. since like the last Pennsylvania LP convention I came to. Yeah. I don't think we've done each other's shows since then.
1: No. Um, like we wow, texted I and we, like, we interacted. Yeah. That's I kind missed, of what I'm talking about. Like one we, of the shows I was supposed to do with you because I had family stuff come up, but. Oh, is
2: that, yeah, were you were you and Jose or somebody supposed to be on, like, joint or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, just, in any of in that. Any yeah, know. that's, uh,
2: that's kind of what I'm getting at. You and I have done nothing but text message for a year and a half, maybe a year or something like that. But here we are, we're talking face-to-face, more or less. Yeah. And I think we're going to start seeing more of that. I, I don't know, like, this isn't exactly the same thing as, like, rebuilding a society, you and me, you know, kind of rekindling a live relationship that we've had in the past. But it's similar. Like, I'm getting a lot out of this. A lot more out of this than I would have just texting. And like yesterday, I, I told you this too. Like yesterday, I talked to Michael Heiss on the phone for like an hour and a half. He's saying like, I should probably not be a 14-year-old. Um, I talked to Michael Heiss on the phone for an hour and a half yesterday. And I don't talk to people on the phone for that long. Like, you know, I call my mom on our, on our birthday and we talk for 20 minutes. So, I don't know. I feel like something's changing. And I think part of that is that we're going to be living a lot more in reality and a lot less in our heads. And
1: what, what were we, well, but, but the American, the American experiment. Let me, let me, right. let me, or did you ask your question? Did you get it out? No, I, I did. I started to go on to a second question, but we should probably answer the first question. Okay, first.
2: <laughs> so here's the issue with the American experiment as I see it. And this is, so I mentioned that I've been listening to or reading a lot of Charles Haywood. I've also been doing the same with like Oren McIntyre and, you know, just a lot of the kind of, dissident right figures i guess uh mm-hmm. in addition to my normal sort of libertarian rotation of podcasts and that kind of thing and like like i keep saying i still consider myself a libertarian and if you're a libertarian who thinks that a libertarian who doesn't believe in the nap isn't a real libertarian well that's you know that's on you i'll see you at the lp convention next year probably like whatever we can still coexist and in any case the american experiment <laughs> so the way that we the way that we like see the founding is that you had like the Jeffersonians over here and they were real big on the federal government and they didn't want to see a whole lot of expansion. And, you know, they were more into, you know, ag- agrarian societies and states rights and so on and so forth. And then you had the Hamiltonians who wanted a King and they wanted the federal government to run everything. That's not the case. Jefferson was just as much of an imperialist as Hamilton. He, Jefferson called it the empire of Liberty. And, you know, he did the, Getty's, or not the Gettysburg address, the freaking, you know, Louisiana purchase and, you know, just made the United States way bigger than it was supposed to be. And it continued to expand and expand and expand until it, you know, took over the entire continent. And now we're, you know, now we're thinking that Hamas is our enemy and not Israel's for whatever reason.
1: And that is the failure of the American experiment. I mean, if, if. But wouldn't wouldn't the failure be, so so I can push back on that. Wouldn't the failure be they didn't take the moral philosophy far enough because. No. Let me tell you why. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So it's
2: not that they didn't take the moral philosophy far enough. It's that they had a moral philosophy. Like nations, and really, I mean, just even a small community. Like, you could probably start, like, a commune with, you know, a couple hundred people, maybe, that is based on some sort of ideology. It's tough to do that with thousands and thousands of people. I think I read recently that 50,000 people is about the maximum number of people that a government can govern effectively. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: here I am in a city of 300,000. I mean, you're in a small town, but, you know, Pittsburgh is pretty huge. Dallas, where I just was, is, you know, millions of people inside the city limits. It's crazy. And that's really what it is. I mean, it's bigness. Bigness is the problem. And, you know, anybody who's read C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton already know this. Smallness is the solution. Bigness is the problem. And when the Hamiltonians ended up winning, like, after the Civil War, and, you know, largely before it even, when the United States stopped being a voluntary union of free and independent states and became a nation that is when the American experiment started to fail because they stopped doing the experiment. They had, they had what you call on project management scope creep. When you start a project, you have a goal in mind and then you come up with like a strategy and tactics to reach that goal. If you start saying, hey, you know, this would be really cool if we put like an extra button right up here on the screen or, you know, if we added a bathroom to this house, you know, I, I'd love to have a like, like a powder room right off my living room so that I don't have to go upstairs. When you do that, you enter into what's called scope creep, and it can, if you don't do it well, you know, as by, say, waging war on your own people, you can completely ruin the project. At the very least, you make the project not turn out the way that you wanted it to at the beginning of the project. And to me, that's kind of what happened with the American experiment.
1: Right. No, I would agree with all that. I think most most libertarians would, and I think most conservatives at this point would too. But I would say that's part of where they didn't take the moral principles far enough, or maybe they just, the, the moral principles hadn't been developed enough for them to understand the, the sanctity of smallness and localism. I mean, I think they thought they did, but they left, whether it was because of, of, of just like oversight or because yeah. the Hamiltonians just had too much of a, their hand on the steering wheel, they left way too many holes in the machine for that scope creep to eventually happen as you described it. So I don't know. I think, and again, I could have made all the same points you did. There's definitely things about the American experiment that I find to be objectionable and are responsible for a lot of the horrors going on today. And I don't know, it's, it's a tough thing because on one hand, I think there seems to be a divide. There seems to be some people who are going more and more into they're just impulsive. And trying to engage with those people with moral philosophy is a waste of time. But then on the flip side, I'm finding a lot of people, and maybe this is the remnant, which that's another religious idea there to throw in there. I think there is a a sizable amount of people that we could describe as a remnant that are in this age of increasing chaos and destabilization. They are looking for answers and are more interested in moral philosophy. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. seeing this happen with my podcast, not on a national level, but i'm actually su- i'm surprised to see it's having an impact at the local level, because like people at my church are listening to it, my pastor's listening oh, to cool. it and talking to me about these ideas I mean my uh pastor and if he's listening to this, he'll chuckle like we had a conversation at our our Bible study this week about the Israel and Gaza conflict, and then texted each other back and forth a little bit about it the day after, and uh, like he he pretty much agrees with like the, you know, kind of the Ron Paul libertarian view of this foreign conflict. And, you know, he was actually talking to me about like, you know, he's going to be talking about this a little bit at church on Sunday. And he's like, I'm going to probably anger some of the dispensationalists that are in our congregation. But um, You have but, you dispensationalists know, it, in Pennsylvania? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's oh t- my Lord. Oh. I, thought that oh. Was
2: a, I thought that was a Southern thing.
1: I am in mean, like your county, which is like the Alabama of Pennsylvania. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. That's funny. I, I
2: grew up in Dallas and I grew up in Dallas around the corner from a church called Schofield Memorial Church. If you know anything about dispensationalism, Cyrus Schofield is the one who wrote like the yep. original dispensationalist study Bible. Yep. Um, and Dallas Theological Seminary is like the dispensationalist seminary. So everyone I knew growing up, including my Catholic dad was a dispensationalist. My dad, who was like had one foot in the Catholic Church and one foot in the like Ryrie Study Bible, which was another dispensationalist study Bible, he was very, like, he didn't believe the Catholic Church was the, the whore of Babylon or whatever. But like, you know, he saw a lot of the, I mean, you probably agree with him, actually. He saw a lot of the, like, praying to saints and purgatory and Mary and stuff as, like, holy pagan and not worth, like, focusing on as a basic tenet of the faith even though he identified as Catholic. And like, you know, we all went to Mass every Sunday and we got confirmed and we went to communion and everything. But like, we had to go to CCD until, until high school, et cetera. But no, like, Dad would lecture us about that kind of thing. And like, the Ryrie Study Bible was always on his nightstand. So anyway, but I'm sorry, you were talking about your pastor and I got into dispensationalism, oh, one, one of my I mean, favorite I guess houses. the point I'm just <laughs> trying
1: to make is that I, I'm finding there's two things happening at once. There are some people who are just becoming increasingly, you know, the NPCs on one side, and I would, I would admit that's the majority, but there's a Please. not insignificant remnant of people who I think are the ones who care about moral philosophy. You know, I would agree moral philosophy isn't enough. There has to be something that allows you to act on that, and you need to have an understanding of, this is where libertarians are just awful, is they have no social awareness of, like, How to engage with the real world and how to build like sustainable things at the local level. I mean, I'm I'm hoping I'm I'm like probably naively optimistic that we can learn to do this better as we go. But yeah, I mean, I think the solution is at the local level, and it is in some sense, you know, based on you know building our communities. But I think we need that moral philosophy. Although I, you know, I, I do the, the Jesus smuggling. That's my thing. It's like, I mean, yes, I, I agree. Jesus smuggling. I mean, it, it is what it, 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 I think it is exactly what it is. It's like, I agree with the libertarian ideas, but I'm like you kind of need the Jesus element to make them actually work. Right. On a, sure. Like I, I guess you could have a completely secular local, you know, libertarian Community or or what or whatnot, but I just think it's at the very least, even if that's possible, I think it's much more optimal and would more naturally flow out of small religious-based communities. Like I, I just think, you know, it's funny. Is actually I cringe at this because like I first heard this argument from the worst person in the world, Ben Shapiro, and it's like he's a hundred percent right on this, hundred percent wrong on like everything else. But back when he was still, like, LARPing as a libertarian, he said, you know, something that libertarians need to learn is that libertarians are right about every right about everything they say about government. But they're completely wrong about everything they say about, like, society and culture. And that, like, there needs to be a convergence of, like, conservative values and, like, religion yeah. and, and libertarian ideas of governance. And I'm like, that's 100% true. Like, I mean, I heard it from the most ironic person to hear that from right now, but <laughs> the argument well the argument makes sense.
2: I think that that's true, but it's only true at the local level. This is where I have not stopped being an anarchist. I think the local government is the only legitimate form of government. Outside of like maybe, you know, if, if Minneapolis, St. Paul and the surrounding areas wanted to, you know, form some kind of mutual defense alliance or whatever, like a police force, fine. I don't, you know, I... I don't really buy the, like, insurance companies would do everything um, scenario that ANCAPs come up with, but that's fine. Like, that, that's great. Like, it's a great hypothetical, and if that's how it ended up working, then that's fine. If it doesn't end up working like that, that's also fine. Because again, like, I I really am striving to live in the real world and not in the hypothetical world, so sure. it doesn't matter to me. That's Pukinones you would say, don't live in ANCAP, scan in our heads. <laughs> I know. Jake? Jacob? Is that your name? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, sorry. I'm so sorry. My brain is so scattered today for some reason. Jacob, let me tell Although you about it's and Daniel, Daniel,
1: but <laughs>
2: I, I know, I know that's the thing. You freaking, you, I, I, I'm sorry. I keep like soft swearing on your show. You had this Daniel three podcast for so long and your middle name is Daniel. The problem is though, unlike most of your podcast guests, like we would hung out for like lots and lots and lots of hours on end, like together. So like, I should, I should know your name off the top of my head, but I promise you every time I think of you, I have to remember like what right. your name was <laughs> anyway. What were we talking about before that? Oh, Pete Quinones. Yeah. I've been following. I've been following Pete Quinones around. Like, not literally. Like, I became an agorist about six months after he did, and then I stopped being an agorist about six months after he did, and now I'm kind of finding myself in this weird dissident right. Like, am I still a libertarian space that he found himself in? And I haven't been paying attention to him, but I think that he's like converted to apostolic Christianity, which, you know, if you had told him two years ago that he was going to be a Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, he would have looked at you like you were crazy because first of all, he went to seminary and he was completely jaded on, on apostolic Christianity. Even after he had studied the fathers, the fathers of the church and stuff, which is usually like our, our sword and shield is the fathers of the church. You know, look, we do the liturgy just like they did. So we must be
1: the right church. Right. Um, did you see me on his show like two months ago? No, dude, I hadn't listened to his show in so long. Yeah, go back and what's watch that, it because, like, I, I, I did not know he had like really gone deep into the Christianity, and I went on his show, and like we went really deep into. I, I went on to make the biblical case for secession, but then we got really deep into culture and Christianity and all that, which oh, was cool. really
2: cool. Yeah, I haven't I haven't talked to him in a while, and like the last time I really paid attention to him, he was still calling himself an atheist. So, but he had Bird on. You remember uh, Bird from Timeline Earth? Um, yeah he's Catholic. He's, he's like very Italian. Apparently I don't know his real name, but, uh, apparently he's just very Italian. And so Pete like actually like literally challenged him to a debate over whether Catholicism is Christian or pagan, like on his podcast. (laughs) So like, that's how far Pete was like from the, (laughs) yeah, I know. So Well, anyway, um, so I don't, I don't know where he's at now,
1: but anyway, I also don't know where I'm at now, which is a little bit, that's your charm. Though, that I guess. You're, you're, you're like a Pokemon who's always in the state of evolving and never stops.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: You're in that state of flux all the time, but which is good. You're always, and, and you and Pete have that in common. Like you guys are very willing to- You just compared me to, to a Pokemon? Yes, I did. Um, all right. Well, well I, I compared you to Pokemon evolution, but I'm a nerd. I don't know. But you're, you and Pete, what I appreciate about people like you is that you're always willing to, to challenge your priors. Yeah. And there's not well, enough people who are willing to do that. And I think we need to be willing to do that in order to avoid the thing you talked about at the beginning, like ideological possession, which is definitely uh, a danger. And there are many libertarians who do that. And those, those are the types who would hear you go, you know, eh, I'm at least a little skeptical on the NAP. And they'd go, you're not a real libertarian. It's like, okay. like, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, Yeah, and- let's talk about the NAP a little bit more. So here's what I
2: think. I think the NAP is a great way for adult strangers to go about dealing with one another. I don't think it works with parents to kids or adults to kids. You know, if you, if you tell mm. your six-year-old to go to his room and you don't let him out of his room for three weeks because he's grounded, you are being a parent. But if you tell your 26-year-old kid to go to his room and you don't let him out of his room for three weeks because he's grounded, you are false imprisoning an adult. The non-aggression principle does not apply to parents and their children. And to me, that's a huge flaw in the non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle also doesn't apply to like edge cases, which fine, like every universal law has edge cases. So like I can't knock somebody out of my hot air balloon if I decide that they no longer can trespass on my hot air balloon because it's my property. If you cut between my house and the next door neighbor's house and you happen to be on my side of the property line, I can't shoot you in the head, that kind of thing, even though you trespassed and violated my nap and so on and so forth. Like, I get that. I get that there's exceptions, but, like, there's exceptions. And to me, for a principle to be so foundational to, like, an entire, like, umbrella philosophy, that principle has to be pretty ironclad. And so that's the main reason that I've kind of stopped saying that I'm, like, a non-aggression principle libertarian. Mm. So what— That's not to say that I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's a great idea.
1: And I think it's a great, like, general rule. I just don't see it as like a first principle, I guess. So what What would you then like put up in its place? Like, and to be fair, clear, it's not like I'm, I mean, I, I agree with the non-aggression principle, but it's not like when I'm on my podcast and I'm, you know, because I, I do a mixture of interviews and, and then more like educational, informative ones. And mm-hmm. when I've done like intro to libertarian stuff, I don't focus on the NAP. Mm-hmm. But I think the NAP is just a shorthand for describing more sophisticated like the way i like to define libertarianism i don't know if you would agree with this or not is i think of it more of a question it's just a simple question of when is violence justified and Mm -hmm. libertarians answer that by saying it's only justified when it's in response to someone else who has initiated it kind of like a roundabout way of saying the nap but it puts it in more of a question form and in more of a you start thinking about it more in a practical sense of, you know, daily interactions, like is violence justified in this scenario? Is it violence justified in this scenario? Now I agree with you. That still has the problems you, you brought up. So it's going to have the problems of the edge cases. It's going to have the problems of parents and their children, which some libertarians have come up with goofy answers for. Rothbard, as much as I love him, had a terrible answer trying to figure out the reconciliation of the NAP with parents and children. <laughs> well, <laughs> that and that's,
2: a- that's another that's another irreconcilable difference there Rothbard. Um, I think most Rothbardians are anti-abortion, but Rothbard was very pro-choice and right. he used the violinist analogy to justify his pro-choiceness. I think it's the dumbest analogy, but I mean, but- I know <laughs> there's, a, there's a book, and I want every like every single Christian listener of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast needs to go to Amazon.com and immediately search for this book. It's called Defending Life. It's by a guy named Francis Beckwith. He's a moral philosopher, so you'll love him. He might be an ethicist. Either way, he's a professor at Baylor. He wrote this book like 15 or 20 years ago, but it is phenomenal. And if you're pro-choice, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make you pro-life. And if you're pro-life, it's going to help you argue against pro-choice people. It is the best book on abortion that I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read a ton of books on abortion, but it's, it, it it just tackles every single argument, including the violinist. That was a complete, a complete sidebar.
1: But yeah, but what would you, so if we don't have the NAP and if we don't define yeah. it by, you know, just kind of like that general, when is it right to initiate force, when yeah. it isn't, like, how would you define libertarianism and engage in describing that with people? I don't
2: know if I would define libertarianism, unfortunately. And it may just be because I would define it with an app and I don't want to do that because I'm still calling myself a libertarian. <laughs> um, but uh, to me, what we replace it with... So here's the pro- The problem is individualism, I think. And it's not even individualism. The problem is like is like this weird sort of twisting of individualism where we start with Robinson Crusoe and from there derive these natural laws or so-called natural laws. To me, I think we start with the tribe. We start with a community of people, we start with a neighborhood, we start with a family, we start with the group of people as it exists in the world. Because people, while we are individuals, we don't exist in individuality. We always exist in a community, unless we're, you know, the Unabomber. And, you know, he did his fair share of violating the NAP. So maybe we don't want to become the Unabomber. I think that's where we start. We start with, how does this community want to be run? And if the community is being run according to the way that that community, and yeah, I know there's going to be outliers. There's going to be one or two people or maybe even a bunch of people. If it's 50,000 people, it's probably going to be in the thousands of people who don't like the way that it's run. But because it is a local community and because those people have the right to flee and can go pick another community, to me, I think that's probably where libertarianism should be starting or should be like the foundation point, I guess. and. But see, that's the thing, though. That gets it out of the ideological thing. And given that it is a political philosophy, it needs to have that ideology. And so... so you're saying libertarianism
1: where, should focus less on moral philosophy and focus more on the, the strict political philosophy. What is the best form of governance and running society and it's to do yes. it as decentralized and localized as possible?
2: I think that's the case. The problem, though, is that, like... Okay. So there's this town in Michigan recently that like banned, basically they they banned any flag that's not the American flag from public property. What it was painted as was they were banning the pride flag from public property. And because it's a heavily Muslim community, they oh. were saying that it was like homophobic legislation or whatever. Um, I would go so far as to say that the community can decide that even individual households can't fly the pride flag even if they can fly the the Ukraine flag and the EU flag and the American flag, and those are the only three flags that they're allowed to they're allowed to fly, I think that a community can say these are our these are our values as a community, and that that severely violates the non aggression principle. And I don't I don't see I don't see a reconciliation there.
1: Well, I mean, like the only reconciliation is if that society was constructed in the hypothetical Hoppian covenant community right. way, but. So it's, I've always like said, yeah, covenant communities are fine. And, and I think Hoppe is very smart, but I, I agree with your critique. That's like, that is not really exactly how people form communities, like, they're not going to form yeah. it in that exact like step-by-step, like we have contracted with every person around us. And like, that's it, just not natural. People aren't thinking sure. about that. But the and end like, result is mean, going to be what, I mean, and, similar. And, and, and Let's say you are a rural, a rural community.
2: I have really uh, trouble saying that word. Let's say you're a country community, and you know there is one trans person in your community. What the hell do you do with that person? You can't just banish them and make them move to a big city. I mean, they're hundreds of miles from a big city. So I understand that there are huge problems with this. And you know, we're a Christian audience. so Maybe it's not a trans person, but maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a person who, uh, for whatever reason, their personality profile, their personality type. Has led them to be hyper skeptical of anything that they can't see, feel, and touch. And so they have become an agnostic. Heaven forbid. But in our Christian community, we don't allow agnostics to live. So we either, we have to banish you. I'm sorry, you can't be here where you're being physically removed. So what do you do with that? I don't know the answer to that question. And hmm. so, like, that's a, hard, that's a really hard case.
1: Well, it's kind uh, of I like... do know
2: that. I know that in like the southern part of America, when, you know, like during segregation and stuff, Small towns like that. I mean, hell, just watch like you know Steel Magnolias or some other movie that takes place in the South. You know, in the in the olden days, you know, there's like there's going to be a gay guy. He's probably going to be a hairstylist or an interior decorator or something like that. And for the most part, like everybody knows he's gay. He minds his own business. They mind their own business. They're friendly and cordial. And if he's a hair hairstyl- if he's a hairstylist, holy shit, he's oh sorry, he's best friends with all the <laughs> women in town. You know what I mean? Like, in, that's just kind of how the gay guy was handled in small town Alabama in the 1950s or whatever. I, at least that's my understanding of the case. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I mean, if he was the only gay guy, what, where was he going to find his like partnership and his romantic fulfillment and things like that? He would probably have to leave town for that. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case in small town Alabama anymore. Like I think that we've become diverse diversified enough to where like small towns are going to have, even the smallest towns are going to have a few
1: gay people. And they might even have their own little bar that like my I, mean, I mean, like I, I used to think that my little town and county was as like red and I mean like full blown MAGA as you could be, but there are, you know, pride flags on the street that I live on. I mean, and like the, the modern ones that have the little trans triangle on the on the side. Oh, it's God. just I, I mean I, I hate I hate I both, but I hate that, that one even you know. worse. <laughs> so but anyway, it's so I, I, I have the I rainbow one. I, s- I have the rainbow one on my
2: keychain still. Although it's a, I think it's more like a vestigial rainbow keychain. Like I, I don't, I, obviously like I've got my, I've got my, my stuff, but like, I don't necessarily like identify as like a member of the LGBTQ community or whatever like that. Right. I don't know if I ever have, but I have pretended like I have, I know in the past. So yeah. That,
1: that, that's, that, I mean, that could be a whole other 30, 45 minute conversation. I know, I know. We have, to- we're like
2: getting towards the end of this already. I'm so sorry that I've like rambled so much.
1: No, I we didn't mean, even get stuck with the LB yet. That's true. Well, we can try to shift there really quick. We have about 10 minutes left. But um, yeah, I think, you know, to, to try to tie a bow in, in, in the NAP stuff. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the NAP is a good guiding moral principle. And if mm-hmm. someone wants to talk about it, I think that it can open the door to interesting conversations about that. But yeah, at the community level, is that always going to play out? Probably not. I would tend to agree with you there. But it's kind of like the NAP is probably, you know, it's like where it really comes in handy is that if you limit your uh, exception to the NAP, right? And say like, so libertarianism is basically local governance and your local government might be somewhat intrusive. But the only government we're going to have is the local government. Or if there is something bigger than that, it basically has no power. I mean, I'm skeptical that federalism can work, but I don't know. Maybe that's the best we could do, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a very strong federalist. Even though I'm an anarchist, I try to live in the real world and be like, what's, you know, what's the best we could achieve in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime or whatever? Um, I can totally see, like...
2: Well, as, let me let me interrupt you for just a second. Like after the inevitable collapse of the United States, like I could see some sort of confederacy starting up where sure. like we're at least some, some something similar to the European Union or something like that, where you know yeah we we do need to have some sort of mutual defense, otherwise we will be invaded, and that's just what right. people do. But like
1: and and yeah. and at that level, the NAP I think is kind of the rule, right? Like, I think the NAP mm-hmm. is really good on that macro-level analysis and really good in yeah. that theoretical level of analysis. But then when you get to the edge cases or you get to your local level, it does start to have some holes in it. Maybe not on like the, like, there might be some purist libertarians, and I tend to sometimes identify in that camp. So I could go both ways there, who would say like, well, there's just, there's no exceptions to it. It's just people have a hard time living up to it. And I go, yeah, but that's a problem. Like, if people have a hard time living up to the principle, you know, especially at the local level, then, you know, if your, uh, if your principles don't work in practice, then you need to, you know, modify them or consider they might be wrong or flawed in some fundamental way. So I think that is kind of the uh, crux of it. At The NAP is the, the broader out you get, the more that applies. Like, the NAP should be what is at play between the Palestinian people and the, mm-hmm. and the Israeli people, it should be what's at play between Ukraine and Russia. It should be what's at play with American foreign policy. We should be staying home and minding our own business and not, you know, trying to be this world empire. So on that level, I think it, it works very well. But I guess there's not gonna be a good way to, to segue from all this uh, philosophical waxing to talking about the LP. Was there, any, was there anything there you think I didn't quite tie in a Bill, you want to comment on quick before we talk about the LP for the last little bit here? I want to say one thing, and I want to invite you not to respond to it if you, if you don't have anything just super profound.
2: Um, I will do my best. I, I, I just... So when you tell a libertarian, like, look, man... Look around you. This is the fruit of capitalism. This is the worst of all worlds right now. What we're looking at here with the COVID and the wars and the, and the inflation and everything, this is what capitalism gives you. And a libertarian says, no, man, this isn't capitalism. This is something closer to fascism than capitalism. If you say something to a socialist, you know, every time communist has been tried, it's been a disaster. It's been an authoritarian, just a horrible hellscape, and also the economy crashed but they'll tell you that that wasn't real communism. Like when you have ideologues saying, yeah, but my ideology has never been tried or that. Wasn't really my ideology. Then maybe you need to look at your ideology and make it comport with the real world as it exists. And so that's like my last, that's like my last point, I guess on all this. Sure. Uh, And I would love to talk about the LP. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So that, that, that was a good way to, to end that section. So, yeah, the Libertarian Party. Man, I don't even know where to start there. I mean, so, you know, there, the, the takeover happened last year in May. Mises Caucus, you know, pretty much swept the board at Reno. We're, I guess, how far are we into this experiment now? I guess like a year and, close to a year and a half-ish. Um, close-ish, yeah. Yeah, close-ish. So, I don't know. It's What are your thoughts on the, stat, the, the state of the LP Overall, And then I also do want to talk to you a little bit about the presidential race, because oh, sure. that, that has been probably the hottest topic of the last like month or so, especially since Dave Smith announced that he wasn't running. And now you have <clears throat> Rechtenwald announcing, you have Josh in the race, you have a lot of, I mean, it seems like infighting is the norm of the Libertarian Party, but it does seem to be at a, you know, in some ways it feels almost worse than pre-takeover but I don't know. it might be a over reaction, so what are your what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's worse than pre pre takeover. The problem is the lP has a has a conflict of visions, just like what Thomas Sowell was was writing about. We have the unconstrained and the constrained view of people inside the LP. It's you, libertarians love to say oh, we're neither left nor right. We're a libertarian. And I'm like looking at the LP and I'm thinking, no, 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 we're both left and right, and we are not working together to try to reconcile those differences. And we've been doing that for 51 years. Hmm. I don't know that those differences are reconcilable. And at this point, and this isn't just like something that I came up with today. I I I think I tweeted about this a year and a half, two years ago. But I don't see a huge role for the National Party at all. There's no reason that the states can't just say, hey, let's do like a nominating convention on Zoom and figure out who our presidential candidate's gonna be. But otherwise, we are going to reflect liberty and libertarianism in our local communities, in our states, as it is understood by these people. Because, you know, when you go to Texas, you're in, like, you're, like, in red country, and, you know, people are conservative, everybody loves their guns, everybody hates their abortion, everybody hates their pedophiles, and everybody loves their death penalty, and so on and so forth. And so the Libertarian Party of Texas is countercultural to the culture of Texas. The Libertarian Party of Texas, like, if you read their Twitter, I mean, it's just pathetic. They're they are they're just like, oh, you know, trans rights are human rights and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, sure, trans rights are human rights, but like, well, when are you going to say that? Like, it's just weird. It's just weird coming mm-hmm. from what I think of as a right-wing movement to be doing that. But I think of it as a right-wing movement because I live in a, in a left-wing state and the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, like, we have, our, we have our drama, but that's strategic. It's not ideological. We are pretty much on the same page ideologically. Yeah, we have a few more identity politics obsessed people but for the most part, like we're not, we're not woke for lack of a better term. So I think that the libertarian parties need to be plural, and and I don't know, I don't necessarily think that there needs to be a central party. That said, what's the state of the party today? They're hemorrhaging cash, they're hemorrhaging mem- members. I think that that was predictable, and we were kind of all expecting it. I don't know that I was expecting it to be this bad. Although Michael Heist and Josh Smith have both told me that they thought it was going to be this bad. So I probably was just Pollyannaish. I think that the Angela. Committee probably needs another term to really turn the ship around. I hope that they get it. I'm not super duper confident that they will. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like the Mises Caucus is onto something. I think decentralization, as we've been talking about for the last hour, um, yep. on and off, I think decentralization is the way to go. I think the decentralized revolution is the proper method of spreading liberty, but I don't think you decentralize by having this massive it's not even massive, my having a centralized party. I think you decentralize by decentralizing the party too. Hmm. A very high-profile libertarian came to me and told me he wanted me to run for LP chair against Angela next year. And first of all, I support Angela. If she runs again, I'm going to be 100% whipping for her and voting for her. If I were running for LP chair, I would be running specifically to dissolve the party at this point. I think that's the best case. I think that that's not going to happen. So the next best case is to continue with the the decentralization route and
1: yeah I've, so, I've often sorry. said that experience. yeah I, I've often said like the takeover needed to happen because libertarian party needed to be libertarian or cease to exist and the second just is not possible like, even if you got it done someone would just recreate it so it just seems yeah. like a yeah. So it's true. Yeah. yeah. So it's like I, I I agree with you in like the, the, the theoretical, but in the practical, it, it would never work. Although the decentralization of the different state affiliates does matter, but there's that tension, and you know I've I've been on both sides of that. I've been on the side of state autonomy, and I've been on the side of sometimes angry at other states who I think are perhaps you know hurting a, a national effort, but then letting it go and being like you know what it's a decentralized. Movement decentralized party, so you gotta you know take the good with the bad there. Uh, yeah. yeah, I, I think I, I don't know if I I. It, it seems like there were staffing issues, and then there was a data transfer screw up, and that caused yeah. a lot of the like inertia and some uh, definitely caused a lot of the money problems. Although it does look like that trend is at least I think it started to reverse. I think last month they they went back up into triple digits in terms of fundraising. Oh. So. Uh um, that's good. After after it was like low. It was like down on the double digits for the first time in a while. Um Wait, when you they're... say
2: when you say double digits, do you mean like they were only bringing in like $50 a
1: month? Or did you no, mean like I mean, 10,000 Sorry, like, I'm, so like they double in, digits before the comma? They yeah, before the comma. Yeah, so five digits okay, that makes and sense. they got oh, like okay. the six right. digits. So it made sense in Co- my head. But yeah, for the audience, to be clear, I think it was like last month, it was like 70-something thousand. And this month, if I'm remembering correctly what I, what I saw, it was back up over 100,000. Whereas like pre-Takeover, I think it was consistently over probably like 200,000 or something like that a month. Yeah, I mean, I think we all expect a drop-off. There were definitely some big donors and members who were going to leave, but we took the party yeah. in a more rightward direction. Like that was kind of predictable um you might even want to call it more a populist
2: direction than right rightward sure i mean true, i yeah. would hardly call karen and harlow's right wing. you know what i mean
1: well she's although she's, she's i weird. mean
2: she she's pro she's pro-life she's i think she's open borders
1: but her husband's closed borders and like you know i mean she's got her own little her little, own little, little words but a little sidebar i am very strongly open borders but also i just hate the border debate anytime libertarians get into the border debate i'm just like shut up doesn't yeah. matter because guess what? Yeah. The American policy of the border is going to be that. It's like That's the status quo. Nothing is going to change. Advocating for completely closed borders, they're not going to do that. Advocating for completely open borders, they're not going to do that. Just shut up. This is Focus what I'm talking about with ideology.
2: This is, this is what I'm talking about. Like that, that frustration that you're feeling is the frustration that I'm feeling with every libertarian argument, basically at this point. like I hate that I'm getting on Twitter and I'm seeing libertarians argue over whether you know dead people in Hamas and in Palestine are the faults of liber- uh, of Israel or Hamas, that's just comic bookery. Like you're just creating villains and heroes, and that's not the case. It, it, both of those entities are responsible for the civilian deaths on both sides of that conflict, and that's where that is. Speaking of conflict, have you heard
1: about this presidential race we've been going on? Y- yeah did you uh, did you Join watch? Yeah, it was a good segue. It's like you used to be a podcaster or something. <laughs> <laughs> did, did did you watch the uh, the uh, debate between Michael and Josh on Dan Spots' show? I haven't brought myself to watch it yet.
2: Although, I will say this. I didn't know about it, and I talked to both of them the following day for a very long time and only got to hear about it. So, uh, I'm pretty familiar with what happened.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm of the opinion that it was a big waste of time. I, I, this was my disagreement with Mike. I was like... I, I why well, don't I don't feel just, a debate in general? No, I'm just kidding. Just, well, I, I, I just, I don't know. And, and like, I put something out on Twitter the other day. I was like, you know, we're on the cusp of, I mean, maybe, maybe I was being a little bit dramatic. Twitter does that. Like, you know, you, you have mm. limited space to talk. You, you kind of, am a podcaster. So whatever. I was like, we're on the cusp of World War III and our leaders in the LP Mises coalition are arguing about petty drama and it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, there's no reason why. And it's not even just in the LP. Like, we have feuds between some of our big figures. You know what I mean? It's like, why are Dave Smith and Scott Horton on the outs? Why are Michael Heiss and Josh Smith on the outs? Why are Tom Woods and Bob Murphy? Like, Yeah, yeah Tom Woods and Bob Murphy. Just, yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's so it's silly. It's exactly what I was talking. <laughs> this is what I was talking
2: to Heiss about yesterday on the phone. Yeah, precisely. There's no reason for it. Like, I think, I don't want to gossip, but like, no, I'm not going to gossip. I, I think, I, I am a person who has never burned bridges with a friend. Like, I've lost friends because we moved away, or we just, like, our, our interests diverged, or we went to different schools, or whatever. I've never gotten in a fight that caused a friendship to dissolve. I certainly would never dissolve a friendship over a tweet. Like, or like a, a perceived snub. And so I can't really relate to what's going on with a lot of these guys and, oh, and it's so, also
1: it's, it's it's like they're arguing over such small potatoes. It's like you know what, listen, I love Josh. I love the way he's doing his campaign and I mm-hmm. think that he gets a bad rap. I think his problem has always been that he's passionate and he overcommits like he he like he gets on different positions and stuff, but you know, he can only do so much. He was running a chair yeah. campaign and, and whatnot. So, like, of course, he was going to miss some meetings elsewhere or whatnot. And not everyone's able to manage that kind of stuff. And I've always said Josh is a better, like, uh, you know, if anything, I think a presidential campaign is a better fit for Josh than vice chair ever was. I was like, Josh is more oh, of totally. a campaigner yeah. and messenger than he is yeah. a desk job guy. And he would have so, been a
2: better chair than vice chair, too. Like,
1: right, exactly. So and, and that's not, nothing against Angela. I love Angela It's true. Right, totally. yeah. So... But you know what? To marry it's like, Josh to Josh, not to Josh to anybody else. Right. So... Yeah. And I also... rectonwald, listen, he's not the most exciting speaker in the world. Although, to be fair, if you go back and listen to Ron Paul, it's like... I won't say he was a bad speaker, but it's not like he was like super... Like he's, he wasn't Dave Smith. You know what I mean? He wasn't... I don't, he wasn't like super energetic or anything. And I think Michael rectonwald has a... I like his story because it, it mirrors mine coming from like he's a Marxist to, you know, Hoppe and Libertarian. I'm a... Democratic Socialist to to Hoppy and Libertarian and and Anarchist. And so I I think that's cool. I I like his ideas. I like his books and stuff. But listen, I love both of these guys. Neither of them has a shot at 5%. Let's just be honest. Mm -hmm. Neither of them has a chance at 5%. That's not happening. I mean, I get get it. Like that's a cool campaign slogan. That's something to rally behind. I would love to be proven wrong by either of them. But it's just not happening. Dave Smith, that would have been on the table. But even with Dave Smith backing Rectonwald, I just don't see 5% happening. Yeah. And you know what? It's like whether... And if you listen to their messages, like I don't know, like I watched them at a debate at the New Jersey Libertarian Party hosted. And I was like, they're saying the same things in different ways. They're both focusing on decentralization. They're both focused mm-hmm. on local governance. They're both focused on like... They're both like in sync on the culture war and all that. I was like, so why does it matter? Like, wh- why are we fighting over... I was like, and and right now, like... Odds are they could just be debating on who's the top and bottom of the ticket. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so and, yeah, and and to me, that's the silly thing. It's like there are some people who really like Josh, some people who really like Rechtenwald. and instead of feuding over it, why don't they work together? It just I don't know. It seems I know. to me. I think,
2: well, I, and I think you and I, you and I, like agreed yesterday, and I, I I'm I'm thrilled that we agreed on this. That we we really like both of them. Like yeah, <laughs> I, I like I'm I joined the Josh Smith campaign before Rechtenwald announced. And I'm still planning on supporting Josh at convention next year. But like I'm gonna vote for Rechtenwald on a ranked choice ballot. Like it's not like I'm gonna yeah. leave him
1: off. It's gonna be one-two. I mean it it's gonna be one-two either way. You know what I mean? It's it's not a mm-hmm. and and so I don't know. I, I think and, and we're running out of time here, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's decentralization is good for governance. It's probably even good to a point for political parties, but Man, at some point you think rubber's gotta hit the road and people have to stop playing political games. Like I I get this is politics, but like I didn't join the party and the Mises Caucus because I like political games. Like I I detest them. In fact, I was on the fence of joining the Mises Caucus for years, and like Heist and other friends of mine in the caucus would always try to bug me to join. I'd be like, I just like I hate political games. Like I just have no patience for that. And you know, I've got dragged into it and now I'm part of political games and I can't stand it. I get so much more fulfillment by doing things in my local church or doing things in my yeah. family. You know what I mean? It's like, the other risk is that you're going to get a lot of volunteer burnout if you keep having mm-hmm. all this infighting. People are going to go, screw this. Like, this is just drama. Um, people are... The other thing is like, with tensions this high, and people throwing shots at each other, like, how are you attracting donors? I was like, I'm not saying we all have to agree. but Candidates. Like, yeah, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's a mess right now. I guess I'm a little bit blackpilled at the moment, at least on the national level. I love my PA team. Like you're hanging out with my friend Calvin here soon. You yeah. Know, Calvin's great. I love all my organizers here in PA. And I love doing the stuff at the local level. But yeah, I mean at the national level right now, I am just like so checked out. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> at, least in, at least until DC. I gotta
2: tell you, I never have more fun than when I'm... at. Had- L B P A events. You guys you guys know how to throw a party. And like it's not even that the parties are exciting. It's just the people. Like you and Calvin and Mike and Jeff and like just everybody who I see at those PA things. And even I don't know how you guys do it, but you're able to like get people from out of state to come in. So like, you know, that's where I met Adam Heyman from Nevada. Shout out to his two podcasts now.
1: That's because PA with a key battleground in the takeover and, and whatnot. Although yeah. we ended we ended out of state voting at the last convention. So now there's not as much of the who runs I think to- we're
2: gonna need to do that in Minnesota next year, actually. We've got the 23 convention, we had a couple of out-of-staters that were kind of flown in by Mises haters, and we they were given keynote speaking engagements, but they also joined the party, so they were participating in the convention. So I think we're going to need to, we're going to probably need well, to that fly in some f- people to get our bylaws
1: changed. <laughs> that was the funniest thing about the PA stuff was that they cried foul when we brought out of staters mm-hmm. in twenty well the twenty twenty-two. But in twenty twenty one, they the only reason they won was because they brought in a bunch of out of staters. Like Ashley Slade doesn't live in PA. Oh. Like <laughs> like so many people came <laughs> yeah, in from that, out of state. Like like Nicholas Sarwak doesn't live in PA. Like what the heck are you doing here? Joe Bishop <laughs> Ethan Bishop Henchman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what what's that guy's name
2: from the Cato Institute? Um I don't remember his name. But anyway, yeah, there were so many people. There were so many people at that thing. It doesn't hurt that you guys are close to, you're close to the big population centers of the Northeast too. Yeah. So they were able to, they were able to come in from New Hampshire, New York and DC and so forth. Great. Well, yeah, I what's think, next? Are we wrapping?
1: Yeah, I think we'll wrap up there. I mean, I think, you know, the the, the LP drama might not be as interesting to, to, to all the listeners, but you know what? There's a correlation between the first half of the, or the first three quarters of the conversation and that, which is, you know, the moral philosophy and the puritanicalism that of uh, of moral philosophy can sometimes be a barrier to actually achieving real world success. And I'm at, I'm at that point in my life where, as much as I care about moral philosophy, and I think we we always need that, right? Like I think you need that as your mm. north star to kind of keep you grounded. But you know what? It's like the same thing. My last little point here, then I'll let you say something before we close out. I have the same problem in the church. It's like, listen, I have disagreements with Catholics. You know, I'm a Protestant. I have disagreements with a lot of Protestant denominations and Lutherans and Baptists and, and whatnot. But it's like, you know what? In the world we live in, if you profess Jesus Christ to be Lord, I don't understand why we're fighting more than we're working together. <clears throat> it, it makes zero sense to me. It's like I remember. I remember one thing. You, you It's because of philosophy. Right. Right. <laughs> well, does the does the Holy Spirit proceed from the from the Father and the Son, or just the yes, Father? Yeah. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, cool. That's fun to talk about in philosophy club or like over drinks with religious friends. But like, it's just, okay. Like we all agree on the abortion front. I think for the most part, we all agree on this woke stuff. I think for the most part, it's just, I don't know.
2: You haven't haven't been around very many, you haven't been, been around very mainline Christian, uh, well, no, the no, mainline right. Protestants main, and, main and also like you're 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 your general Catholic as well.
1: I mean, you're, you're, no, you're, just, you're, you're, you're been, right. The mainlines have been hijacked by a lot of wokeness, but uh, but yeah. I think also a lot of the serious Christians have left those churches because That's they've true. been they've been infiltrated by you know, by 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 the wokeness. I'm going to give your editors one more
2: one more thirty second thing to to get past. I was at my corporate retreat, and our chief marketing officer, we're on this tour bus, and he is you know, I think the problem with Christianity is that it's just not progressive enough. They need to have more more progressive Christian denominations. That would grow the church. And I was like, dude, what planet are you living on? Like, it was the progressification of Christianity that made the people leave the church in grow. Like, oh, I just, it just, it blew my mind. It, he's our chief marketing officer. It's not like I'm going to challenge him, but holy cow. Anyway, sorry, that was a, another tangent. Let's close out. Do your thing.
1: Yeah, cool. Sorry. All right. So, yeah, I don't have anything else to say. James, if you have, I mean, you're not a podcaster anymore, but if you want to plug Blackbird anyway, tell people where they can find it because it's presumably still there. People want to go listen to it. And if you you know want to plug LP Minnesota or anything else you want to plug before we drop sure. out, get out of here.
2: Yeah, actually, I would love people to go join the Libertarian Party of Minnesota. That's at lpmn.org. We do accept out-of-state members and We could really use you if you want to go to our convention next year. We might throw a little party to attract out-of-stateers. Follow me on Twitter, JamesLJ, and then just kind of stay tuned. I'm really planning on a big, like, historical education thing, more like American studies, like the cultural history rather than just the military and political history. It's at the very, very germ phase of that, so I haven't really done much. But my partner, Andrew, and I are kind of planning on doing it together. He's a writer, and I'm kind of a commentator, so I'm going to do the commentating, and he's going to do the scripting, which I think is gonna be nice stay tuned for that i guess there's not really any concrete plans or domains or youtube channels
1: booked or anything like that but it's sort of the pie in the sky thing anyway cool All right. Well, thanks, James, for coming on. It's always fun talking with you. And, you know, I hope the audience was able to follow along. It's the problem when you have friends on a podcast is that, like, you can just take each other in like a million different directions at once. But also, I think people also like that. I mean, that's why Joe Rogan's successful. That's why the long form podcast thing exists because people like people who are just being authentic and just talking about stuff. And you don't always need a cookie cutter agenda of covering points a b c through d you know so i I hope the conversation was edifying to all you who decided to tune
0: in and we'll be back again in another week the biblical anarchy podcast is a part of the christians for liberty network a project of the libertarian christian institute if you love this podcast it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.